are five episodes deep into the new Percy Jackson series, and if I dare say so myself, each one is getting better and better. Between the loyalty to the books and Greek myths, I'm so impressed that I've managed to almost fully block out the movies from my memory. Sorry, Logan Lerman, it's not your fault. As great as the series has been, it could not exist without the endlessly interesting Greek mythos, which is why I want to spend this episode pointing out every single myth that's been referenced so far. Today we're talking about episode 2, so spoiler alert, but make sure you check out my breakdown of episode 1 if you haven't yet. Oh, and if at any point you find yourself thinking, that's a snazzy shirt John's got on, I sure wish I could pay tribute to the Lords of the Underworld and be super comfortable while doing it, you can find a link to meremortals.store in the description. Now remember to sacrifice those like and subscribe buttons to the algorithm gods and brace yourself for the messed up myths behind Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Myth 1. The D is for Dionysus. After the encounter with the Minotaur, Percy wakes up at Camp Half-Blood, where he's introduced and reintroduced to a whole new cast of characters. Unfortunately for him, the first of these characters is Mr. D, Dionysus, the god of wine. Ironically, Grover is not a huge fan of Mr. D or at the very least seems to want to avoid him at all costs. I don't blame him, but in the mythos, pretty much all satyrs were Dionysus worshippers. Mr. D is the camp director and forbidden from drinking alcohol. This is all part of his punishment from his father Zeus for making moves on a forbidden nymph. I wondered if this was a reference to a specific nymph, but I couldn't find any that both Zeus and Dionysus pined after although they were both big fans of the nymphs. This could also be a reference to Dionysus' love triangle with a nymph named Baroe and Poseidon, which he ultimately lost. Maybe that's why he messes with Percy so much. He's still bitter about it. Myth 2. The Trainer of Heroes Percy's conversation with Mr. D and Grover is interrupted by Mr. Bruner, who it turns out is really a centaur named Chiron, the trainer of Greek myth's greatest heroes. Odysseus, Perseus, Theseus, and Jason were all trained by him, and the greatest warrior of all time, Achilles, was raised by Chiron since he was a baby. Now, as I mentioned when discussing the Minotaur, centaurs are actually an entire species of their own. The first centaur was the result of a test that Zeus gave King Ixion. He since the king was coming on to his wife, Queen Hera, and to test whether he'd really go for it, he transfigured a cloud nymph named Nephili to look like Hera, and Ixion got her pregnant. Their child was a deformed hunchback called Centaurus, and he was ostracized by mankind, so he moved out to the mountains and started banging horses which led to the creation of the centaur species. You'll be happy to hear, though, that is not how Chiron was born. Oh, no, no, no. Which is what makes him so special and unlike his rowdy brethren. Chiron's mother was an ocean nymph named Phalera, and his father was the Titan Kronos, the former king of the cosmos, who also sired the original six Olympians. This makes Chiron Zeus's half-brother and also a mortal. Myth 3. Hades and Pixie Dust At the end of episode 1, when Percy's mom dissolves into a shower of pixie dust, he thinks that she's dead. But we learn from Grover that Hades may actually be involved here. He says that when a mortal is close to death, Hades can personally reach out and... 
but I don't think there's any basis for this in mythology. The only slightly comparable situation I can find is the death of Queen Alcestis. On rare occasions, Hades personally collected the souls of the dead instead of sending Thanatos, the personification of death. And according to Apollodorus's Bibliotheca, this was the case when Alcestis agreed to die in place of her husband. You could sort of equate that to him reaching out and poofing people down to his domain, but in that myth, he has to physically collect Alcestis, and Heracles doesn't like the idea of this happy couple's love being cut short, so he heroically wrestled Hades into submission. Myth 4. Kleos. After Percy meets Luke in Cabin 11, Luke explains to him the Greek concept of Kleos. Demigods have always fought for glory. They used to call it Kleos. It's like this stuff that attaches itself to your name, makes it bigger, scarier, more important. I'm not gonna lie, he fucking nailed it. But I will expand on his answer. Greek heroes earned Kleos by accomplishing great deeds throughout their life and even including their death if they went out in a blaze of glory, like catching a flaming arrow with their face instead of letting it land in an orphanage. But Kleos wasn't limited to physical acts. It could also be achieved through intellectual achievements, like founding a new school of philosophy or writing literature that would be passed on for generations. Kleos can also be passed on from father to son. In other words, great things would be expected from the son of a great man. But if that great man died a needless, pathetic death, then his son would have to start at the bottom and work his way back up. Myth 5. God of Disappointment this next reference is a really fun one. After Percy spends a lot of time trying and failing to discover his domain and get claimed by his father, he asks, Is there a great god of disappointment? Which is a question I've never thought about before. This guy responds that Oezes is the closest they've got, but she's more like the goddess of failure. Only here's the thing. I looked it up on one of my favorite resources for researching Greek mythology, theoi.com, and they describe her as the personification of misery and woe, distress and suffering. And if you look at their sources, like Hesiod and Hyginus, they call her misery. I would say that misery is closer to disappointment than failure is, so I don't know why the show's writers described her in a way that none of the ancient writers did but I digress. Not trying to be nitpicky, it's a tiny little detail, but one that would have been effortless to get right. Myth 6, Daughter of Athena. A little later, we meet Annabeth, the daughter of Athena. But in myth, Athena didn't have children. Like being a virgin goddess was kind of her whole thing. You know, she turned a woman into a snake because she didn't respect the tenets of her virginal worship. So what's the deal? Well, in the Percy Jackson universe, both the book and the show, Athena creates life from her thoughts, not from intercourse. So Annabeth's dad never really hooked up with her mom. Athena just dropped Annabeth on his doorstep one day and said, Here, I made this for you which is pretty messed up when you think about it. Her dad didn't even want her at first, so it doesn't sound like he consented, at least according to the book. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that Riordan took this idea from Athena's birth. As you all know, she was born out of Zeus's forehead, but the way that some writers and poets described it was by saying she was born out of Zeus's thoughts. The closest thing that the real Athena came to having a child was actually with Hephaestus, the god of blacksmithing and craftsmanship. He really wanted to get with Athena, but she wanted nothing to do with him. 
Even still, the thought of hooking up with her was more than he could bear, and he squirted his godly goo all over her leg. Disgusting, right? Well, Athena thought so too. She took a piece of wool, wiped it off, and tossed it to the earth below. But remember, in mythology, the earth is a goddess of her own, Gaia. And when Hephaestus's man mayonnaise landed on her, she got pregnant and gave birth to the half-man, half-serpent Erichthonius, the first king of Athens. Myth 7. Sacrifice After the conversation about Oeses, Percy learns how the camp makes sacrifices to the gods, because the gods like the smell of burnt offerings. And this is true, but it wasn't necessarily expected that you sacrifice the most important part of your meal. There's actually a myth that explains the origins of sacrifice. When Zeus told Prometheus that humans were to sacrifice livestock to the gods, Prometheus asked him if we could only sacrifice half and keep the other half for ourselves. You know, so we had something to live on. Zeus agreed to this, but Prometheus was clever and swindled him into giving us a much better deal. Prometheus killed two bulls, skinned them, then filled one of their hides with all the meat, while the other was filled with bones, hooves, all the gross and edible stuff. He presented them both to Zeus, but he dressed up the gross portion with fat to make it look more filled and appealing. So Zeus chose that one and found that he just made a terrible deal. Because of this, we mere mortals were allowed to use meat from livestock as sustenance and only had to sacrifice the inedible parts. Now, that being said, there is also no shortage of myths about characters sacrificing things that are extremely important to them, like their children. Those kinds of sacrifices were only made in extreme circumstances though, like when a sea monster was attacking the kingdom. Regardless, I would say the show is accurate in showing that the more important the sacrifice, the more likely the gods are to pay attention to you. Myth 8. The Pact before the big capture the flag game, Percy learns about the big three's forbidden children. You see, at some point, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades all agreed that their children were becoming too powerful and that they should stop reproducing. But it seems like Hades is the only one who actually stuck to his word. Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades agreed their children were becoming too powerful, so they made a pact not to father anymore. And it held for a long time until Zeus broke that pact. A forbidden kid attracts trouble. Monsters everywhere, just constant battle to stay alive. Both Zeus and Poseidon continued to have children. Zeus had a daughter named Thalia, and Poseidon obviously had Percy. Neither kid was particularly dangerous or powerful at the age they were discovered, but when you look at the track record of divine children, it makes sense why the gods would be so concerned especially with Poseidon's. This is rarely discussed, but Poseidon has had a ton of children that just turned out to be plain evil, or at the very least, selfish and power hungry. There were the Aloadai, two giants who stormed Olympus and tried to abduct both Hera and Artemis. Anteos was a king of Libya who challenged travelers to wrestling matches, killed them, then added their skulls to the roof of his temple to Poseidon. And of course, Charybdis, a sea monster who Percy actually encounters in the second book. Those are just three of dozens of bad eggs. So while Percy technically hasn't done anything wrong at this point in the story, you can understand why the gods would be so suspicious of him. Myth 9, Annabeth's Invisibility Cap. 
One of Annabeth's most prized possessions is the invisibility cap her mother Athena gave her. But how accurate to the mythology was this gift? This brings up two points worth exploring. First off, in myth, there are only two pieces of headwear that grant the user invisibility. That's Hades' helm, which he received from the Cyclopes and used during the war with the Titans, and then in the Iliad, Athena uses a different helm to be invisible while riding in Diomedes' chariot. I'm gonna make it my own personal headcanon that the second helmet is what Athena bequeathed unto Annabeth. We know for a fact that it wasn't Hades because in the Percy Jackson universe, Hades' helm of darkness comes with many other powers besides just invisibility. Also, we learn later in the story that his helm has gone missing as well. The second point is that Athena really did give gifts in the form of weapons and armor to various heroes, the most notable being Perseus before he slayed Medusa. Funnily enough, Perseus was given Hades one and only helm, but not by Athena. Instead, there were some nymphs who allowed him to borrow it, and then he gave it to Athena once his job was done. The gift Athena gave him was also useful, but nowhere near as exciting a mirror. This allowed him to look at Medusa without making eye contact, swing his sword with precision, and chop off her dumb old head. And that is the final myth referenced in episode 2 of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. I think. I'm pretty sure I hit everything, but if not, let me know by hitting up me or Messed Up Origins on social media. Those links are all in the description. Also, remember to sacrifice those five-star and follow buttons if you learned anything from this podcast and want more mythological breakdowns of the rest of the series. The plan is to deep dive into episodes three and four this Friday, and that's when things are going to get real interesting, so you don't want to miss it. I'll see you again in a few days, mere mortals. My name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first. Thank you.